What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning. Racism, white supremacy, sexual assault, homophobia, slavery, and things that go bump in the night. Action! Excitement! Horror! Romance! Thrills and chills! Swords and sorcery! Rockets and ray guns! A dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination! What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Now, if I thought this right, I may have a chance to determine what sort of world it's native to. We don't and can't know by any other means whether it came from Earth or Mars or Venus or from beyond the stars. And just because it looks unlike men, you don't have to accuse it of being evil or vicious or something. Maybe that expression on its face is its equivalent to resignation to fate. White is the color of mourning to the Chinese. If men can have different customs, why can't a so different race have different understandings of facial expressions? Conant laughed softly, mirthlessly. Peaceful resignation. If that is the best it could do in the way of resignation, I should exceedingly dislike seeing it when it was looking mad. That face was never designed to express peace. It just didn't have any philosophical thoughts like peace in its makeup. I know it's your pet, but be sane about it. The thing grew up on evil, adolesced slowly roasting alive the local equivalent of kittens, and amused itself through maturity on new and ingenious torture. You haven't the slightest right to say that, snapped Blair. How do you know the first thing about the meaning of a facial expression inherently inhuman? Just because its nature is different, you haven't any right to say it's necessarily evil. Norris burst out a single explosive, Haw! He looked down at the thing. Maybe that things from other worlds don't have to be evil just because they're different. But that thing was. Child of nature, eh? Well, it was a hell of an evil nature. Hi, welcome to What Mad Universe. I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hello. Yep. And uh, today we're talking about the the novella, uh, Who Goes There? This is one of the shortest things we've ever looked at for this show, but I think it's very relevant. It was written by John W. Campbell, uh, published in uh 1938 i believe is the date um and it, of course john w campbell is someone yeah 1938 uh campbell is someone we've talked about a lot on the show because he was the editor of astounding science fiction and he really did shape the course of science fiction uh in the 20th century so i think uh, it's going to be a very uh significant uh thing to talk about and we will continue as soon as we're back from this commercial message today's show is brought to you by epos gaming audio with a comprehensive lineup of both wired and wireless headsets, gaming amplifiers, microphones, and webcams, Epos has everything you need to experience the power of audio. Like their H6 Pro lineup, which features two versions, an open or closed headset, the closed headset allows you to tap into exceptionally detailed audio and seals out ambient noise, while the open version delivers natural high-fidelity audio with an incredible soundstage. Both headsets include a magnetic, detachable microphone and a sleek design that has no wild RGB configurations, just good design. Listeners can save by visiting www.eposaudio.com gaming and entering code EPOSFRIEND15 at checkout to save 15%. Alex, hi, I'm Ray. How would you explain our show number whoppers? Are you a nerd having trouble transitioning from your 20s to 30s to 40s and beyond? Age with us, not at us. I'm already gray. Are you tired of the man keeping you down? If you see something, say something. Do you enjoy the family computer? Capsule computing. We got them all. No more whoppers. We outlived the queen. She said it couldn't be done. No, I'm fading. <laughs> Come back. I can't do this alone. Do you enjoy number munchers? And is numbers what you call p- Then listen to No More Whoppers. Only on the Tokyo Beat Network. All right, we are back. Um... So yeah, uh, as I said, so we've definitely talked about uh, Campbell uh, a fair amount on the show already, and we've 
we might go over a bit of territory with him that we've already talked about, but it really is, uh, you know, about the different sort of stages of science fiction that exist uh, in the 20th century and how the whole genre developed. And Campbell was just massively important to that, not only in the sense that he brought several of the big titans of science fiction into the, uh, particularly Asimov, Heinlein, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, into the, uh, into the light, but also, uh, just his whole philosophy and, and, uh, ethos of science fiction, uh, played a major role in how the, the genre was shaped for the rest of the, uh, the century and up till today. Um, and in both ways that are both good and bad, in my opinion, um, and then, of course, uh, the, you know, so there's sort of the different phases, you know, there's the pulp phase that led up to Campbell. Campbell sort of seized control, and then it's the sort of Campbellian era for a few decades during and immediately after World War II. And then you get the new wave, and that's where things uh, mutate away from uh, Campbell. But um, um, and uh, in addition to who goes there, uh, we've now both read the book uh, Astounding, which is about Campbell and that whole era of uh, of uh, the the sci-fi pulps uh you 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 finished reading that right uh, yeah yep. it's by uh, alec navala lee yeah thank you for the, uh, the published in uh, 2018 and it's a uh, um rather scathing biography of campbell and also covers uh, asimov hubbard and uh uh heinlein yeah and a few uh few other people who came into his orbit yeah. and so forth Th- those yeah. are the main focuses but yeah it talks about like like it it mentions almost like a lot of people we've talked about on the show, like Bester and um, um, Philip K. Dick and Frank Arthur Herbert. C. Clarke and um, 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 Samuel R. R. Delaney comes mm-hmm. up. Yeah, yeah. Like even Alan Dean Foster is mentioned at one point mm. as being at a protest nearby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You that, read this to more a convention f- that uh, that astounding that um, um, Campbell was at. So yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, you read this. You just read this, whereas I read yeah. it like uh, last year or so. So the details are fresher in your mind. Um, it is really interesting. He was definitely a mass of contradictions. Um, uh, fairly famously, we discussed this. Uh, we like to. Uh, uh, we've discussed this a few times that uh, Campbell was. Um, he was very conservative, both small C and and large capital C conservative. Uh, he was really racist, but he had these weird aspects to him that contradicted that like for instance he launched uh, delaney delaney's black uh and he'd launched his career to a large degree um uh he he you know he 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 supposedly had this real hang-up about aliens uh in which he he really hated the idea that aliens would ever be smarter than humans and that that uh, like for instance asimov mentioned that there's no aliens in the foundation series because he knew uh he'd have to butt heads with Campbell about it if he put them in there. Uh, and this was at a time when Asimov was practically a teenager, so he really wanted to get uh, Campbell's, uh, you know, uh, get in his good graces and when he pitched the Foundation series. Um, but, um, I mean, he also wrote this book. He's also supposedly uh, quoted uh, when we talked about, um, what, what's the Martian Odyssey? Uh, what, what's the author of the Martian Odyssey? Um, He's somebody who never actually got hired by Campbell. Um, right. But, uh, no, Stanley Weinbaum. Stanley Weinbaum. Well, as I recall, someone, like the book that we read actually quotes uh, Campbell, who said, um, like, give me a a creature that thinks as intelligently as a man, but not like a man. Uh, That was his challenge for writing Aliens, which goes against the idea that, you know, he wanted aliens who were anything more than you know, uh, inferior races, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's, he seems to have had a bit of a, a, a series of contradictions going on in his head. Yeah. And uh, it also, the book also quotes, I, I can't remember who, but somebody is, if uh, Weinbaum hadn't died like prematurely, uh, the Campbellian era of science fiction would have been called the Weinbaum era of science fiction. Mm. And it's just by a twist of fate that, uh, Campbell sort of like, it's, it's interesting. Cause, um, uh, yeah, what could have been? Yeah. Do you mean in the sense that Weinbaum's sort of ethos would have overcome Campbell, or that Weinbaum was the one who had ideas that, you know, like that 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 were similar to Campbell's, but they would have overridden uh, his? Yeah, I, I think it's more that uh, it just science fiction would have gone in a different direction, like mm. for, like not necessarily good or bad. It just it would have been different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so 
as I understand it, the whole thing about the thing that marks out Campbell, and I mean, for which he does deserve credit, is that uh, American science fiction certainly um, had been, uh, you know, we can't sort of speak to, we've, we've looked at some uh, certainly British and also the odd uh, science fiction in other languages like French, uh, but certainly like um, science fiction had certain modes in the 19th century and the early 20th century um, where, yeah, like you had people like Jules Verne who were thoughtful and tried to, you know, I, we just covered um, uh, uh, Star Psy Cassiopeia, uh, which has that soul, that whole element of world building. And it, it does seem like French science fiction was a little ahead of the curve on that in the sense that it wanted to be a little bit more uh, about world building and like plausible construction um whereas well, American- i mean there are a lot of british stuff to hg uh, wells of course sure sure but i mean well as we've said as we said in the last episode you know wells was criticized by Verne as like you know where is this cavorite show me your cavorite <laughs> you know it's that kind of like it, it's a little bit more um focused on the adventure and the Maybe, I guess, the political ramifications, whereas the French is more like, oh, yeah, let's actually try to do capital S science fiction, you know? Um, And, uh, I mean, this is vast generalization here. Of course, there were many different writers in many different modes. But if we look at Wells and Verne as two of the titans of science fiction in the late 19th century, that's the the, the contrast we see between those two. And American science fiction uh, by World War I and then afterwards was... It was the pulp era, uh, and I think the focus was a little bit even. Even the quote serious stuff uh, was a little more focused on adventure, on uh, high flying, like big ideas that didn't necessarily have to be grounded in anything like reality. And I mean, it's science fiction and fantasy, but you know, Campbell was the one who introduced the idea of like, well, let's try to think through the scientific ramifications of this and bring it into like. You know, like, oh, if there's a world where you can't breathe the atmosphere, what would that be like to live on that world? And, you know, what, what if, if there's a world where, you know, um, the, the, the different uh, stars, there's a multiple, a, uh, not even a binary, but a multiple star system, uh, what would that, how would that affect uh, the civilization there, which led to something like Nightfall by Isaac Asimov? Um, you know, like, it, it's, it's still not like super hard rigorous science fiction although he kind of tried to be and that actually made a lot of his stuff uh, dated very quickly but he did introduce the idea of like well let's think through actual real things that exist that we know of and how that would impact a story and how that would impact things like psychology and civilizations right yeah and when campbell was coming up <clears throat> uh, apparently all his early stories were basically just formulaic you know um um an adventurer gets a benefactor and he makes a spaceship and then fights off an alien invasion or whatever. Apparently they were all just cookie cutter, the same thing over and over again for quite a while. But he was still quite popular because he, he um, brought in like technical specifications and stuff uh, in a way that hadn't uh, uh, been around. And he was uh, a, a rival to um, uh, Doc E.E. E. Smith. Like he was like the, the second most popular writer after, after Smith who did the Lensman series, of course. And he apparently, like, challenged Smith to, like, uh, pointed out errors in Smith's work <laughs> and, like, challenged readers to point out similar errors in his own work, <laughs> right. which is funny. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it's like, what was his degree in uh, uh, Campbell again? He was a he, he had a scientific degree, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it was, um, I can't, it was chemistry it, or something like that. Like, he, he did, like, some degree of research work, but, like, not much. Right, like he he claimed to be like a nuclear physicist and stuff, and like no, yeah, yeah. Well, there, yeah. So there's where you the thing. So it is, <clears throat> it it's like it, there's a side of him that I'm going to say, like I'll say this now because we're probably going to get into really tearing into him <laughs> later on. But I will say that like that is something I am very sympathetic to, and that I'm very that I find intriguing. Just the idea of like. In, that intellectual curiosity and that idea of like, well, let's think this through and, oh, I want to hear rival viewpoints and let's have a whole discussion. Let us reason together, you know, sitting on a Greek uh, agora and, and togas discussing uh, high-minded ideas, you know, like that, like that has a real appeal to it. And that was how, sci- that was how sci-fi started to view itself. And it was a largely because of, not, not solely because of Campbell, but he really cemented it. As the as astounding mentions, um, he uh, in addition to editing 
and uh, the magazine and and having you know this sway over people like Heinlein and Asimov, uh, they all sort of he he created this little um, corner of like science fiction writers who had science backings uh, to work on projects during World War II, and he was actually a big believer that there could be a a, a link between his science fiction writing and actual science and helping you know win World War Two. Uh, he he got he he got them all to be part of a little uh a little uh project uh that was attached to some engineering uh projects during world war ii so they were they were you know helping the war effort in that well, way it it apparently never actually led to any creations or anything but no it didn't uh, do it didn't actually accomplish much but it was like this little brain trust that he had off, over in the corner which was kind of interesting yeah and in terms of like contributions like to asimov uh uh like both uh, Asimov argued that Campbell came up with the uh, three laws of robotics, and Campbell said Asimov came off with came mm. up with it. Um, but uh, and other others said it was like a synthesis of the two working together. Um, in terms of foundation, I mean, it was seemed a lot of it was um, um, Campbell's ideas as well, like yeah. um, the idea of uh, a few a few stories in sort of. Uh, making it so the um, psychohistory starts falling apart because there's a new element introduced, and that led to the the mule story, which is one of the better one, like right. one of the better ideas in that. Um, yeah, I mean, it it seemed uh, a lot of um, uh, yeah, Asimov's it, work in particular was very much in conversation with Campbell. Yeah, well, I I mean, I would go further. I mean, let's remember Asimov was literally. He was he was barely out of uh, his teens when he started writing for yeah. uh, Campbell, and I mean it was very much like a, he was a vessel for Campbell's ideas. And uh, like I, you know, not to not to disparage Asimov, who then had like fifty years of writing and clearly had you know skills as a writer, uh, but I do it, like I do feel like Campbell almost has to be considered the co-author of the Foundation books in particular, uh, because not only are you know was he. Uh, like Asimov's story is that he just uh, he grabbed a copy of um, Gibbon's uh, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire and used it to, as it turned it into a sci-fi pitch. Uh, but he also like he knew even though it's his pitch, he knew what Campbell liked, and he knew Campbell was very attached to the idea that you could like predict things mathematically, and that the idea that like maybe history could predicted be predicted mathematically, uh, and the whole co- uh, psychology angle, which uh, plays into uh, yeah. Campbell's uh, later activities. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get um, into that. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but yeah, that's that. He was very much an idea of like, uh, uh, oh, you can turn every uh, you can you can you can turn your brain into a robot brain and and you and use it to solve all the mysteries of the cosmos. And so that was obviously something Asimov, even as a as a very young man, knew that he could use to appeal to Campbell. And uh, Campbell probably helped him develop the first couple of Foundation stories. And as you say, it's probably Asimov taking over and going, okay, but what if this had problems that didn't work? And like, like uh, and I mean, to his credit, Campbell does seem to have encouraged that. He wanted people to be in conversation with him and to push back against him. But his own particular hang-ups were very much on the idea that you can, uh, you know, you can mathematically predict anything if you're smart enough. You could, if you become just a smart enough guy, you can just uh, sit down at a table and solve all the problems of the universe. If, we, if only we just had the platonic philosopher kings <laughs> sitting in a room somewhere, we'd have all of our problems solved. That's that's very much Campbell. So, but as you say, like that, L. Ron Hubbard also exploited that uh, with, with Dianetics eventually. Yeah. Um, uh, oh, uh, something... Um, we'll, we'll get into Hubbard. Um, but uh, something... Because we did a, an episode on Foundation and uh, neglected to mention that Asimov had a... Uh, uh, I, I I vaguely knew that he like sexually harassed people, but uh, or women specifically. Um, but I I didn't know to the extent, and th- this book really outlines that uh, he was just grabbing women all the time, like uh, like daily. Um, Asimov, you mean? Asimov, yes. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really uncomfortable because in a lot of ways he's like very progressive in his thought and like yeah. he, he was probably the most progressive of these writers but he also just thought you know pulling bra mm-hmm. straps and grabbing women's butts is is yeah. just a fine thing to do and uh, apparently would um like he would hit on fans uh, at conventions and uh uh like when he would show up to the office women would like uh employees would come up with excuses to not be there so 
Yeah, it's, yeah. He's, um, it, it was very much uh, like that. That whole thing was a boys' club. It, it, ironically, I don't think anyone's ever said that about Campbell himself or Heinlein or whatever. But like, it was very much the idea of like, you, you know, you're a kid, you're suddenly propelled into massive sci-fi. St- Again, he was very young when all this, and suddenly he's like a sci-fi superstar, and you know, even being convinced that oh, you're doing super important work. And Asimov's this like very poor shopkeeper's son from the, the like the east side, I think, of of New yeah. York. Yeah, and like he's and incredibly shy early on and like even uh before he got famous he was writing about how or to in letters and stuff how uh uh women don't really have the the capacity for for understanding sci-fi and how there's so few women uh yeah. sci-fi writers and fans and stuff so like the that weird nerd misogyny was like present mm-hmm. from his beginning and it's yeah. it's really like uh, again, unfortunate considering he was actually pretty progressive in a lot of ways. Like he pushed back against a lot of Campbell's ideas on, um, mm-hmm. like his extreme conservatism and and yeah. racism. Well, as, as with Delaney, who's a black gay man, and was the, you know in theory that's the kind of person Campbell would not have gotten along with at all. Uh, the fact that Campbell brought him into his orbit and did, in fact, you know, help him launch his career to a certain degree, even though they. They didn't, they didn't, I don't think they got along exactly, but they, you know, it was the idea of like, no, but, you know, there's a mutual respect, I guess. So, I mean, like, if you're going to say something about Campbell, at least he did want people in his orbit who would challenge him and, and, and disagree with him. Um, to but a certain, I mean, to a certain extent. To a certain extent. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, as, as, as they hit the fifties, it sounds like Campbell kind of became, I'm the godfather of sci-fi, God damn it, And you're going to listen to me kind of thing. And that actually. Uh, particularly gave, about his, every crackpot idea he he was mm-hmm. into at the moment right like and he I would mean, not stop lecturing people about uh, first dianetics and then psionics and then all the weird yeah. machines he was supposedly involved in inventing it was yeah it sounded like he was absolutely a nightmare to be around towards the end there yeah, like you couldn't be in a room with the, him without him trying to convert you to his latest cause and mm-hmm. like not letting up yeah so it, it's funny because it, it is he is this perfect encapsulation of a certain thread that we see to this day. Um, and like I say, like, it, you know, it, if you just go to like what we were looking at recently in sci-fi with like the sad puppies and the rabid puppies and the, the stream of science fiction, that's very like reactionary. Um, but that's also bound up with what's supposed to be, you know, rationalist and logical. And if, you know, if Campbell was in charge, he'd say, you know, oh, you got to consider all different viewpoints and challenge yourself. Um, and I mean, it, it's all there. It's that idea of like somehow these super rationalist, chin-stroking uh, would-be geniuses end up falling for like race theory and and like like uh, uh, what what's the word? Um, uh, psychological, uh, you know, evolutionary psychology and and worse stuff like like white supremacy, basically. And and because it's like, well, it's we're all considering this in a a sphere of high-minded intellectualism and you know they get all you know everyone gets all frustrated when i say well maybe the nazis had some good ideas it's like well there's a reason for that because people who live in the real world know that that there's bad reasons about that and they like to think they live on this intellectual plane where they don't have to consider the real world you know implications of anything they do or say um and and it leads to that kind of problem unfortunately i i don't there's nothing about uh, uh, Campbell saying the Nazis had good ideas, but no, he no. did say well, he, he, he did say slavery uh, was was a yeah. potential good thing, and that it it worked. You know, well, he wouldn't have because he was literally fighting the Nazis. Yeah. So, but but like it's definitely like although like let's be clear like there were people in in the U.S. who probably you know didn't think Hitler was so bad up right up until they declared war on him, right? Um, yeah. But uh, but um, Campbell uh, did make like apparently frequent defenses of slavery as an institution which is wild yeah um and he also um uh i can't remember which writer it was it wasn't asimov but uh uh, he asked about um if he saw a concentration camp during the war and uh the the guy said yes and campbell said i'm so sorry I, i i always consider jewish people homo superior and the guy was offended, you know, obviously. Yeah, and uh, Campbell just, like, insisted for years later. No, I, he didn't hear me. I said homo superior. 
<laughs> yeah, he didn't. He didn't quite get, get what the problems were with that. That's exactly it, right? It's this sort of like, it, if you if you dig down far enough, it's kind of well-meaning, but it's just completely off the rails. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's been, and it's whatever the the negative side of things. Like you, you don't want to acknowledge how much you're being influenced by the negative side of the culture that you're stewing in like you you think you've detached yourself from that and that you're this perfectly intellectual rationalist who isn't affected by emotional or or cultural trends and currents so that when somebody accuses you of that you go oh you don't understand i'm the rationalist you're the irrational one right and that like it's it's all there in campbell and his little circles uh mindset you have a quote i think you wanted yeah. to talk about here yeah yeah uh this was uh, a letter campbell wrote to asimov uh it doesn't say in the book when this was but it could have been any time um you may have had trouble heaped on you for being a jew i had trouble heaped on me for being john w campbell individual you felt excluded and set apart from the great group my friend they had me set apart from the whole damn human race yeah that's and it's very much like he believed that uh it, you know um, in it, like intellectualism above all else, like that was the important thing, and uh, that was like his reason for for believing black people were inferior because they were in lower points and so- lower positions in society, so yeah. they must be intellectually inferior. It's Very funny. Merit- meritocracy thing, but like in the forties and thirties, like yeah, segregation still exists. I mean. <laughs> Like, yeah. legally. Well, uh, it's funny. Uh, like, it's funny that, as far as I can tell, he never really got into Ayn Rand, because that seems like oh, it was no, right. Oh, uh, no, he, he did. He did, actually. Oh, okay, uh, there you go. In, uh, <laughs> I guess he was it, almost it, towards the end of his life. Anyway, yeah, he, yeah, it mentioned that he was, uh, uh, he liked uh, the work of Ayn Rand, but said she was probably a lesbian. <laughs> oh, God. Which, like, too, too... she wasn't even, <laughs> so... Yeah. Too conservative to get into Ayn Rand, you know? <laughs> it, it goes around, you know, it's, it loops around to being, like, to correctly reject... Yeah, it's the the people who reject Ayn Rand because they're misogynist, basically, <laughs> even though everything <laughs> they say is... And, yeah, it's like you can see the libertarianism there. It's that whole aggrieved libertarian thing where it's like, we're the real... You know, those who choose to be individual are the true outcasts of society. You know, like, it's that kind kind of idea and then they start you know saying aren't the true slaves the ones who have to pay taxes kind of nonsense <laughs> like it's and then they yeah. start everything slavery except actual slavery <laughs> which is fine <laughs> yeah right you start associating yourself with like actual marginalized groups and then when people push back against that you get all angry and offended about it you know that's that's uh he's he was in that hole but it, it, it's just funny that you can see that everything that we're talking about to this day and then through like Heinlein we are we've talked about how like Ben Shapiro has quoted Heinlein to to take to 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 lambast Marx and um but even like uh Asimov who was not like I, I have a feeling that if Campbell hadn't existed uh or if Campbell had like dropped dead in 1938 or whatever um Asimov might have gone into like being a Marxist, but he didn't want to because he knew it would t- tick off Campbell. You oh know yeah, I mean? he he hung out with a bunch of uh, communist uh, science fiction fans and authors. Uh, uh-huh. uh, Paul Anderson, uh, who I I'm not sure if he remained a communist, but he was heavily communist yeah. in the in the 30s. Well, even Heinlein um, was a socialist initially, yeah. and then he drifted away from it during World War II era. But yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, Asimov was all definitely uh progressive in ways except for you know uh grabbing yeah. women um well we talked uh, about like the futurians he, if you remember yeah, that was the like group he, and there that's kind of like a pseudo marxist or pseudo socialist group within the science fiction community that didn't want to say the word socialist but seemed to be gravitating in that direction anyway yeah and um uh like asimov argued with uh campbell about um um the civil rights movement and and segregation yeah. and stuff and um yeah uh he he insisted that Campbell was actually if you just I think you're on my side you just need to like look at the facts a little more I I think he was uh, in denial a little bit on how yeah. deep uh, Campbell's racism went Right Well again it's this idea that like but he's an intellectual I must be able to get him to see reason and it's like no because they the the fact that they've staked out such a position as an intellectual means they won't examine their own prejudices and realize that they're not being rational it's ironically this is it's the you know we see that again this is what we see today with a lot of people who are actually very dumb but 
are because they're 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 associated with science and intellectualism. Uh, they think that makes them intellectuals and scientists, and that they are therefore more logical than the people criticizing them. Like a certain uh, uh, multi-billionaire uh, we all know right now uh, is very like I. You can't convince me he's not being heavily influenced by that whole uh, sphere, Campbellian sphere, even if not Campbellian directly. Um, you know, a, a, a guy, you know, that's, it, he's, he's clearly inspired by, I'm talking of course about, uh, the guy who is the richest man on earth right now. Um, I don't think I need to say his name, but he, but Jeff Bezos, Elon too. Musk is his name. Oh, it's Elon Musk. Yeah. Right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. That's That's who it is. Um, but, uh, Jeff Bezos has a similar vibe from what I understand. Like it's the whole, oh, we'll build space colonies and we'll be super rational. Like he doesn't advertise it as loudly as Musk does, but he seems to come from that attitude. Maybe even Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg's even plays it even closer to the chest, I think. Um, yeah. The, I mean, he likes like Roman history and stuff, but yeah. 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 Well, again, it's like, oh, we're, are we not intellectuals? Do we not uh, uh, ponder the great mysteries of life and our billionaire mansions, which we earned by being such hard workers and such geniuses? You know, it's that like you can see Campbell's thinking like leading to that, basically. And the fact that it came specifically from the trend of science fiction uh, and, and culture is, is what led to that, basically. Um Let's uh, let's talk about who goes there specifically, um, because the original uh, yeah. title of which was going to be Frozen Hell, which is a much better title. Hmm, depends. Um, like Frozen I don't know. Hell I don't very, think it's a very pulpy title. But who goes there is a little more like mysterious and evocative to me. I don't know. I, I like guess. It. Yeah. I don't know. It They're doesn't strike me as that interesting of a title. Well, Frozen Hell sounds like uh, a little overwrought, uh, not bit of nonsense, basically. Um, but yeah, hey, you know, it's. I think that's. I think that was actually a big push in uh, in the uh, uh, pulp era, where writers didn't want their work to have such like lurid titles, <laughs> and they were pushing back. Like uh, Harold Nelson, that happened to him a couple times. I think uh, with Harold Nelson, he he wrote a, a book and it got uh, like a, a an over the top title that he didn't care for. And there's a few books that are out there with various titles that the authors, you know, tended to change it back to what they wanted. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Um, but yeah, so this is um, essentially this is the thing, which is to say the 1982 John Carpenter movie. Although it was a- adapted before that in 1951 into a movie called The Thing from Another World, um, and um, it's interesting because bo- all the movies reflect Campbell's viewpoint. Even though the 51 movie is actually very different from the story, um, you can see some of the same kind of political currents and tensions that we're talking about in that story, uh, in that movie, rather. Um, and, and even though Campbell had nothing to do with it. Uh, so again, you can see how he's kind of impacting the culture. Um, but we'll talk about, let's just talk about the novella first. Um, it is, as as you know, if you've seen uh, the Carp, if you have, even if you haven't read it, if you know the Carpenter movie, it's uh, uh, a, an, an Antarctic uh, scientific outpost. They dig up what turns out to be a frozen spaceship in the ice, which contains, in, th- in this case, it's actually, uh, I think they find three different bodies, but only one of them is preserved because it wandered out of the spaceship. Um, it thaws so, out. Yeah. yeah, it thaws out. Um, it's it's this horrific-looking three-eyed, red, blazing-eyed creature with uh, tentacles where its hair should be and around its mouth. Um you know, as, reminded as, me of the uh, the the aliens from uh, 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 sorry Xenogenesis was uh, the uh, yes. Octavia Butler uh, mm-hmm. with the wormy hair yeah. might have been a direct influence on on the design of those creatures and even C L Moore uh, in her uh, some of the stories she wrote of Northwest oh, right. Smith have the, that same kind of thing um, it, it's and and Campbell in turn might have been implied influenced by Lovecraft it's hard to say um, uh, apparently uh, according to astounding. Uh, he was, but he didn't like Lovecraft, but he wanted to sort of, um, uh, he didn't like Lovecraft and how he would uh, say, you know, something's really horrible, I can't describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this was like a, at least in part, a challenge to uh, At the Mountains of Madness to like, right. I, yes. I can do this right. Yeah, that's right. Yes, this definitely is impl- influenced by At the Mountains of Madness. And yeah, I can see Campbell not liking Lovecraft because Lovecraft is like, there are some, some things beyond human comprehension. And Campbell would have been like, no, there aren't. Shut up. <laughs> Everything's every Human comprehension can cover everything. You know. Um, um, but yeah, it, it's uh, a scientific ex- 
expedition in the Antarctic, there's a shape-shifting alien. In this case, the, the alien can uh, mimic human beings, which the Shoggoths can't, but it, it's still some similar, some similar concepts. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it sort of takes over, and um, in, the, in the book it's not actually very clearly mentioned, but he does imply that uh, it's what, what you more or less see in the Carpenter movie, which is that it kind of infects you with cells that kind of eat your cells and take over your cells, basically. Um, no, it, it describes that. It has that happening to the dogs, and they stop it before, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I guess it's not made as clear to me as it was in the movie but it, it like that's that's obviously what he's describing um and um yeah like the uh, the the they, and they, so the biomass keeps increasing of the monsters so they, they create more monsters uh and the story is very focused on who's an alien and who isn't like it's about uh the game of oh logically we we know that guy must not be a monster because this and oh they told me uh to do uh, a test that uncovered a monster, so they probably aren't a monster. Oh, unless they did that to d- dissuade, uh, you know, uh, to to um, sh- throw off suspicion from themselves. Uh, you know, like it's that it's that kind of like, well, I know you're lying, but you know that I know I'm lying, but you know that I I know that you know that you know it's that kind of thing that, that happens throughout the story. It's very much about trying while they're trying to find the test, which is effectively the same test that they use in the movie to heat up the blood samples. Um, I think it's exactly the same. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. It's um, it's the idea that the blood, well, it, it, the blood will react, although maybe not quite as strongly as in the movie. But then the the monsters, when they see their their the jig is up, they they leap across the the floor and start to attack. Right, like they. So yeah. the monsters are clearly it's it's unclear in the movie whether the the the, the things are aware that they're things um, until like they have to form a defense a defensive reaction kicks in like so the humans who think who are who've been replaced by things might still think they're human uh, but uh, in the- uh yeah it, it's it's a little unclear though uh i mean it, in a good way like I, I think that's that's fine but uh uh say um uh wilford brimley's building a spaceship like oh that's true yeah and he yeah, does sort which of- also sort of happens in the book though it's oh, yeah, a, a, right. more of a hover hover thing yeah, and it is the same character, Blair. Like they actually yeah. do have the same. I I mentioned that because the characters are completely different in the in the nineteen fifty one movie. It's they're McCready's not in it, Blair's not in it. Like it's a whole bunch of different characters. Um, but yeah, you, no, you're right. In the movie, the the monster must be aware that they're monsters once they've been taken over because they at least yeah. at least some of the time. Like yeah, uh, yeah. and they they actually hinted in the book possibly that they don't know they're they're monsters. Uh, because the uh, the creature in the book is actually psychic, um, right, which is right. left out of all the the adaptations. Because um, um, Campbell uh, believed in in ESP and stuff, and right, they mentioned right. that uh, oh, I forget the the scientist who had the cards with like the squiggly line right. and stuff, and uh, to uh, test Cat- ESP. Paddington or so, or or something. Anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Campbell was a big believer in that, even yeah, though yeah. those those uh, that experiment was never replicated and yeah in the story he literally says well we know uh uh telekinetic uh telepathic abilities exist because it's been proven by this experiment and i'm like you sure have they have they campbell is that really what's happened um but um yeah which it's ironic that he's such a hardcore science believer <laughs> he fell for that kind of kind of thing well um, he continued to for the rest of his life yeah, so exactly yeah um you know, it's a, it was a perfect storm of like uh, being uh, regressively, uh, you know, in some ways and just leaping into whatever crazy thing came along in another way. Um, yeah. So, yeah, as, as you mentioned, paranoia is a big thing in this, which is interesting. Apparently, Campbell's earlier stories, as I mentioned, were very much just, you know, straightforward, square-jawed hero, uh, um, solves everything through science and there's a bit of that in here but yeah there, McCready, there's a little more... McCready is literally described as the man of Bron- like he's literally doc savage almost yeah this. <laughs> but so, um yeah. there okay there's a lot of that in this but there's also like uh character work and like uh, mm-hmm. uh the paranoia aspect apparently um campbell's uh uh collaboration with his wife at the time donya stewart um uh really helped his um uh, writing along in terms of um, style and and att- attempting new things outside of his original uh, box he had put himself in. 
Yeah, that make that okay. So that makes sense because this she was like be... his proofreader, like his his secondary reader. Uh, she replaced his father, who was his original. Mm. Um, and yeah, apparently she really pushed him into like um, trying trying different things. Yeah, that that makes sense because this this seems to be a big outlier among Campbell's own uh, written work. Uh, like as you say, he was very much obsessed with like the technical specifications. You know, people famously say his his stuff is unreadable now because <laughs> he was hung up on the technical details, which have dated almost instantly anyway. And there's so little like you know character work and stuff like that. Um, like I'm very much in favor, as I say, of the larger idea of you know, treating it as a logic problem or, or like trying to think through the ramifications of things, which that becomes timeless. But when it's literally like, well, you know, we know that the Ethereum uh, 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 composition of the atmosphere will fill your Q zone with pure, pure goodness, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> it becomes yeah. very hard to read, you know. Well, I mean, what, one of the great things about the, the John Carpenter thing is that it's, for the most part, smart characters trying to work through a, a very difficult situation. Yeah. Um, and like they, like I, I, I sometimes get annoyed at people who say that horror movie characters are are inherently bad if they do something dumb because people do stuff that is dumb. Like just people mm-hmm. do that. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's nice seeing a story where all the characters like pretty much make the correct decisions throughout in terms of. Um, uh, thinking through things logically, like it yeah, is, I, it is refreshing in that way. I, I completely agree. That that's what I'm saying. And, like, and a lot of that comes from the original story. Yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, it's dumb when people go, "Oh, that's a plot threat. That's a plot hole because he didn't. He did something stupid." It's like, well, people do stupid things. But it's also you have to admit, if the characters are just acting like idiots nonstop and like walking into uh, down darkened corridors alone and like just constantly like getting themselves you know stabbed in the face, like it gets frustrating because it is yeah. lazy writing, right? Like. It, you want the characters to have a certain level of awareness and, and, and intelligence or they're not relatable, right? Um, so, yeah, and, and I mean, again, that is part of the point of the story. It's like, how can we, people desperately trying to, it, it almost seems like a riposte to Campbell because it's like, oh, these people are very intelligent and they're trying to reason their way out and they're not doing a very good job or they're they're facing uh, something that makes it very hard for them to reason their way out and they're they're being picked off one by one. Uh, although yeah, the book, I would say, is a little leans a little more towards, no, we can do this than the movie. The movie is a little yeah. more bleak about it. Yeah, uh, I mean, the book has a happy ending. They, they stop the monster just before it's about, like, there's still like a hint of terror because it was like half an hour away from escaping antarctica yeah um uh half an hour away from finishing its anti-gravity harness so it could escape um in the movie like even at the end it's unclear exactly what's going on like they could both be things and saying you know at the last lines what do we do now we wait i mean they they could just be things at that point (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That of course the endless discussions. The movie invites you to say, well, which of them has been infected? Are either of them infected? Who knows? You know, like that's a that's that, that's exactly the kind of sort of logic puzzle. But it's a but again, it's a little bit more like you can't necessarily think your way out of every yeah. solution in in the movie. Um, I also want to so mentioning the fifties movie, which is interesting because it's um, it's such a perfect little. You should check it out, uh, Philip, because it's a yeah. I, a, I wasn't. I didn't have time to to watch it. I, I was sort of uh, was finishing up uh, Astounding yesterday, and I just uh, yeah, yeah. it was too late in the evening to to start uh, a movie before. I had to do some other stuff. So yeah, sorry about that. That's fine. I mean, it, it's as I say, it's not hyper relevant because it's such a completely different story in many ways about all they've kept is the it's actually the arctic in the 50s movie not the antarctic Um, yeah it's alaska apparently from astounding describing it and it's a non-shape-shifting vegetable monster yeah it's 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 a a ship in the ice found uh in the the frozen wasteland and um and scientists uh try to think their way out in this remote environment but that's all they keep really uh it's a new set of characters uh uh it's very heavy on the military side of things so howard hawks is the producer and by most accounts he was basically the director even though christian nyby is the listed director uh the usual uh the usual uh, uh, agreement is that hawks basically directed it ghost directed it um 
And because um, uh, it has a very Howard Hawks feel, it has the sort of snappy dialogue and overlapping dialogue and everything. Uh, it's very much in love with the military. Uh, that movie, it's it's about how great the military is, uh, which is something you see in a lot of pop culture for the next twenty years after World War II, because everyone had been in the military and formed these uh, friendships in the military and seen them and you know kicked the Nazis butts and like they all there was kind of a bit of a a euphoria about how the military is and it it does need to be said there are aspects to that that led to positive uh outcomes like for instance uh one of the reasons that segregation fell was that black veterans had seen and and there were people who had fought in world war ii who sort of went yeah you know i fought alongside black people we helped beat hitler together i'm not gonna you know even if they would be fundamentally conservative in other ways they would they would start to see the logic of that um but and you know, like and, and a lot of culture like apparently uh can't really say it the mf word yeah. um uh was originally like in in uh, african-american spaces and it only sort of passed into white culture through uh through uh, again uh the soldiers working alongside each other so yeah, yeah that's interesting a, that it's it's war you know it, like it's it's the thing the for, perpetual thing about the military of like the obvious bad things about militaristic culture and everything like that but it is definitely true when there's a war culture changes fast and sometimes it can be for the better not necessarily because of the leaders of the military but because you've just thrown all these people together from all these different walks of life and they've they're they're working together to accomplish a goal and it can it can it can have some positive uh ramifications it could have very negative ramifications as well of course um but anyway so that was kind of the like in some ways the outcome of world war ii was kind of the best case scenario for some of that and you see it all the way up to star trek which is in many ways like, like even star trek is kind of like which we talk about as this progressive utopia it was kind of like well that's how it was in the navy back in the old day. it wasn't but it was like you know that's that's how that mindset was born out of uh you know a bunch of people who probably would have been really racist otherwise um anyway so it's the the the, the movie's really uh, in love with the military culture uh the actual uh negative side of that is uh that the scientist character is very much the villain uh because he's the guy and and in in some ways this movie is the er 50s sci-fi movie because it's it's got everything you think of as a as you know 50s sci-fi it's black and white the heart the square-jawed military hero the weird scientist guy who's like no we must reason with the creature as it's like killing everyone and like oh he's betraying his own race kind of thing you know what i mean which again has content has subtext that is not the best um and um and and of course it has this, just the goofiest monster like that would be a really good movie if the monster wasn't such a cheesy thing like it is the dopiest monster you, if you've ever seen it it's literally just a guy in boris karloff makeup basically um it's not remotely convincing and it's funny because the directing is really well done they try everything they can to make it like there's one scene where like the power goes out right as the monster appears in silhouette in the door frame it's a very effective shot but again you said it's the poster for the remake uh the um yeah it's different in the re- well that's the got the sort of glowing head it's the it's 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 a little bit it's more uh, it's more about uh, a dynamic shot like in motion that makes it so effective mm-hmm. um it's a really cool shot but again the monster is just such this goofy thing that it, it kind of ruins it unfortunately and um yeah, again, it's it's like it's it's uh it's a movie that means well, but it's got like the 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 and like they code the scientist is kind of gay and kind of a communist and like every bad thing you want to say about like everything people were reactionary against in the fifties is flashing against this uh this the scientist character who's evil because he wants to you know communicate with an alien being from the stars basically um, yeah you mentioned it as the quintessential 50s sci-fi but like there there were other uh viewpoints in 50s sci-fi movies like the day of the earth stood still which is sort of the opposite thing where yeah, like the yeah. the the trigger happy military guy causes a lot of problems obviously right. in the in that movie or um i don't know them where nuclear testing is the pro is the yeah. real villain well, that's just it. Like, the reason we think of 50s culture and 50s sci-fi as being a certain way is probably down to this movie more than almost anything else. I mean, mm-hmm. there's other movies, but they're not as good. Like, of the actually good 50s sci-fi movies, and there are quite a few good 50s sci-fi movies, even though it's seen as this cheesy sort of era. As you mentioned, as you mentioned the, the, the Them and... and uh, um, uh, 
uh, the Day of the Earth Stood Still and uh, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers as well. Um, like, it, like there's a lot of good 50s sci-fi movies. But of the good ones, uh, this is probably the one that has the most of what we would think of as the problems of 50s sci-fi mm-hmm. movies. Um, so it's just interesting in that regard. And it's funny because, again, Campbell is not involved. And he probably would not have liked that the scientist character was like a was a jerk. <laughs> he would have said the scientist character would have been the big hero. Um, but it's still got that sort of uh, the, those sort of prejudices that you uh, that you you associate with the fifties red scare scare era and everything. So in uh, astounding, they actually discussed some of the reactions to it. Uh, I, I can't remember uh, who said what, but like there were criticisms from it within the the group, uh, uh, either Asimov or Highliners uh, yeah. about uh, various aspects of it. And Campbell sort of said. Yeah, but it, it helps, you know, uh, science fiction get a wider audience. Like, that was his, his thing. Okay. Uh, I'm surprised because I, I feel like at the time a lot of those guys would have been like, oh, this movie is nonsense. And they would have been right to say that it's nonsense oh, and there's stupid yeah, yeah. science uh, and everything. Like, yeah, there, there were arguments on, on both sides. Yeah, yeah, basically, it's like um, I mean, there's another movie from the year before, I think, uh, Destination Moon by, uh, and it was like Robert Heinlein was actually heavily involved in it, and it's attempting to be a, sci- a hard sci-fi. Yeah, uh, again, it's a good movie. It's attempting to be a hard sci-fi. Uh, description of what it would be like to get to the moon uh like how you would actually plausibly do that as what they knew in 1950 where like and the, apparently the, the director be- got caught up in the red scare stuff and yeah uh destination moon you mean yeah yeah uh possibly i i that doesn't have a very strong uh, well i i'll have to rewatch it i don't remember it being very focused on like the commies except maybe in the sense of like we got to beat the commies to the moon uh but i don't remember no no i mean that the the director of that like got like uh uh blackballed and stuff ah i see yeah that makes sense Um, and it it, um because it it comes up because uh heinlein became in the in a sounding that heinlein became like heavily pro oh yeah uh, not McCarthy directly. He didn't like. He didn't seem to like McCarthy on a personal yeah. level. Yeah. But like he, he thought like it was good to like go after communists and yeah. let yeah. make them lose their jobs and stuff. Uh, yeah. And yeah. like people he worked with, like that included people he worked with. So yeah. And like and it's funny because he he also like praised L. Ron Hubbard because L. Ron Hubbard during World War II would come back with all these exciting adventures of during World War II that he and he was just making them up he was just lying and he was like a, a swindler and a monster but like Heinlein was like but he's a soldier you gotta respect him kind of thing he was yeah Heinlein bright, never really. gave up his belief that Hubbard like even after he like thought Hubbard was like doing horrible things with uh with Scientology uh he never gave up the delusion that uh Hubbard was a war hero yeah like he's he really clung to that it seems yeah. like because he would have had to admit he was wrong and god forbid he ever do that right um yeah so I mean it really does again it just shows you this whole thing of like um people and and with the McCarthy thing it's like yeah people at the time knew McCarthy was like a boor, he was the Trump of his day in some ways right they knew he was an idiot but they're like but he's you know oh but I agree with this uh, like these people who should have known better but like oh he's he's advancing my political cause so I, I'll I'll grumble about him but I'll go along with him you know it's that kind of thing right um so you can see how like supposedly being an intellectual super super brain doesn't uh doesn't really help you that much. So in some cases, unless you're willing to be self-reflexive and think about what you're uh, what you're talking about. Okay, so we've hinted at it. We should probably get into Campbell's relationship with Dianetics and Scientology. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's. Uh... Um, he was uh, a lot more uh, responsible for Dianetics than I, I was aware of. Uh, um, he might have coined the name. Yeah, Dianetics. I think that's um, I think that's right. Yeah, like yeah. like it was initially framed as this heavily scientific process, and that was to win over Campbell as much as anyone else. I think, and then he became an evangelist for it. Yeah, and then uh, Hubbard started going in different directions, and they sort of broke apart. And then Hubbard made it into a religion. So Campbell was never involved in Scientology as a religion, mm-hmm. but like he was heavily into it as a therapeutic technique and believed yeah. it could cure like. And, and like men will create a giant uh, brain box instead of going to therapy is basically <laughs> yes. what Dianetics was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, like he, they did believe. I like Campbell didn't believe in pa- the past life stuff. That was like Hubbard started going into that. But the the idea of you can uh, like audit and figure out everything that's 
wrong with your life is because of mm-hmm. things that uh, you heard your mother say when you were in the womb or like yeah, at conception. Yeah. yeah um, yeah. like that, <laughs> you didn't have yeah. ears. I I don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was. It was it, again because it was framed as this psychological, essentially a hack for your brain. Uh, you know, and and it played on stuff that uh, Campbell was receptive to. He ended up, you know, hyping it and being. Yeah, and as you say, he was a, a big evangelist for uh, Dianetics at the time, um, until he eventually fell out with Hubbard. But uh, and yeah, then Hubbard, but it, you know, it might have broken up his first marriage. Uh... Yeah. Uh, Campbell's first marriage, although they they seem to have been on the outs for a while, but like um, it was sort of the last straw. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was um, man. It, even before it was religion, it seemed to have ruined a lot of lives. Oh, yeah. Like Hubbard was just like a, a an absolute monster. He was a con yes. artist. He would exploit everyone. He was a sociopath. He had no morals at all. He just exploited yeah. everyone around him as much as he could. And um, he was abusive to his wife and he kidnapped his, his children when when his wife wanted a divorce. <laughs> as um, I said, yeah. we, wa- we want to do a, one of Hubbard's stories just to see what they're like, but uh, you know, don't don't assassinate us, uh, uh, Scientologists. This is all like speculative. We're just reporting what we read in a book. Uh, we don't yeah. believe it at I, all. I, I think uh, upcoming uh, we will be doing one on old Doc Methuselah because I'm I, I am interested in uh, that's Hubbard's series uh, uh, that he wrote for for Astounding. Um, I, I am interested in in his writing, like morbidly curious about because yeah. uh, uh, apparently it's not good. Yeah, like, as, as with Campbell, as with Campbell, it's kind of like he had one or two things where he kind of rose above and produced a decent story. But like, yeah, generally his writing is not very good. I've read, I started reading his old Battlefield Earth uh, series that he tried to write much later, and it, it's 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 a drag. It's like. Nothing. Yeah, yeah. That 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 was because Star Wars was big, basically. Sorry, not Battlefield Earth, Mission Earth. Uh, Battlefield Earth is, of course, famously the terrible movie with John Travolta, and apparently the book's not much better. I don't think the movie uh, ruined the book in many ways. The but, book's yeah. quite a bit longer. Yeah, yeah. Because the movie only covers like a third of it, or something. Mm, yeah, right. Because they were going to do it into a trilogy. It was like a, a million words or something. The book, and it mm-hmm. was broken up into like randomly broken up into a trilogy, like yeah. like Tolkien. Well, uh, well, let's save that for when we talk about Hubbard, then. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think fair, uh, fair enough. Yeah, uh, the, this story, despite all the negative stuff we've said about Campbell, this story is actually quite good. Yeah, uh, and I would recommend it for fans of the thing, uh, the John Carpenter one. Um, because it, it really does uh, a lot of, like, the, not all, but a lot of the great things about that movie come from this story, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty faith. yeah, the Carpenter movie is surprisingly faithful uh, to the book. Like, again, like, the the, the the focus is different, but it's it's fairly yeah. nuanced in that regard. I do think the movie's better um, mm-hmm. than the book, but, like, a lot of, like, it, it just sort of takes uh, what's what's good about the story and just expands on it. But yeah, and, the the book is very good in its own right as well. And and you have to remember this whole sort of like you've been replaced by an exact duplicate who's like that was fairly new. I don't know if it was the first ever uh time that it had been done, but it's definitely like one of the earliest uh popular I, I like I can't think of another story that yeah. did that uh, before oh, this. Um apparently so. it did become from uh, Campbell's relationship with his mother. Um he uh, he had a, a very difficult relationship with his mother, and his mother also had an even worse uh, sister, like identical twin sister, uh, who Campbell often confused the two. Like he would, like oh. not always know if it was his mother. Like he, right. he apparently accused them uh, of his aunt of like intentionally dressing like his mother and stuff. And uh. <laughs> that's probably not the case, but you know. Yeah. Um, he definitely had uh, well, uh, weird paranoid issues with his mother and aunt. Yeah, well, it's also a real psychological syndrome where you believe that your your loved ones have been replaced with duplicates, basically. Well, like that's, yeah, that's in this case, around. she actually did have a twin who was yeah, apparently. No, of course, yeah. but I mean, it's it's like it's 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 a thing. It was probably that kind of tendency was probably exacerbated by something like that. But it's a thing that other people have believed if they've had psychological problems oh, yeah. necessarily. Like, so you can see like the human brain might fall into that essentially. Um, there's even I think. I even read a science fiction story where they suggested that the reason humans have that tendency to to worry about like that's a human but not quite is like there's something in our ancient history that like 
mimicked humans well enough that we developed that sensibility. <laughs> like, like it's kind of a, that was a, that was a sci-fi jumping off point basically. But like that's a, yeah. that, that's kind of a funny uh, funny idea. But like yeah, we definitely have that tendency. That's kind of what the uncanny valley is as well. It's the idea of like that that sets up warning flags for us that it's not quite you know human. Well, there are only two of us left, so why don't we just sit down here in the snow and see what happens? We have been Adam Prosser and Philip Rice. Or are we? Website. Or are we? Website hosting and production was by Alex Ross. Or was it? Our theme song is by composer Jack Furick. Or will they? <laughs> a reminder that we both have Patreons, which help pay for blood tests to determine which among us are monsters, as well as hosting costs and whatnot. So subscribe to either of us, and you get to steal early episodes of this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice with one L, or Adam Prosser with two S's. Uh, you can, uh, or what-mad-universe.pinecast.co for the links. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast. Uh, uh, or Spear Half Oak A for me or, or for Phil or Fear, Prankster 36 for uh, me. Um, also, Blue Sky, same things, WMU podcast.bsky.social and Spear Half and Prankster 36.bsky. So until next time, sleep well, knowing that you're still human at least. <laughs>